0: This is the Scott Thompson Show
1: Podcast. Celebrations for this weekend will be a little easier on the wallet. I know that's hard to believe considering uh, natural gas is going up July 1st. Happy Happy 150. Uh, and, of course, uh, driver's license fees for those kids just starting out are going up uh, as well on July 1st. You'd think they'd pick a different day just for, you know, symbolic reasons, but call me crazy. Uh, that being said, uh, gas prices ha- ha- are the lowest this weekend, Canada Day, than they have been in previous Canada Days. Let's talk more about this with Dan Tagg. Uh He is, of course, a uh, critic analyst at uh, GasBuddy.com. Uh, GasBuddy.com to find out more about what he's up to. He is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today?
2: I'm fine, Scott, and thanks for having me today.
1: Thanks for taking the time. Usually when we call you, it's bad news. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and- well, it may still be bad news for uh, three cents wholesale price increase overnight uh, but that won't last very long and it still means that even if we hit a dollar seven dollar eight uh liter we'll probably drop down to about a buck a liter come saturday sunday and monday so hold off on uh, buying gasoline if you don't pick up tonight then wait until saturday sunday or monday uh, just avoid a uh, gas station on Friday.
1: So uh, obviously, uh, here we are. We're going to talk about this. This, you know, being uh, traditionally a higher price for gasoline, and now this year it's lower. But that's of course coming after a three percent, three cent hike tonight. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, everything that we're about to say, other than you know, the, the the one condition, the caveat to it all is, of course, there's going to be an increase uh, tonight. So fill up today or wait till Saturday is your message there.
2: Yeah, it's still cheaper than it was last year, and this is the cheapest. Uh, July first, June thirtieth, that we will uh, see at the pumps going back to two thousand and nine. So, yeah, I'll take it anyway I can get it, especially given uh, that there have been some tax increases at the pumps, and that we have never seen, certainly in living memory, a situation where gas prices on July the first is cheaper than January first of the same year. In fact, United interviews on this, Uh, I, like so many others, believe this would be a far more expensive year, but that simply hasn't. Uh, that hasn't materialized much to the satisfaction of people who might be saving anywhere uh, from five to ten cents a liter.
1: So, explain this. Why is this happening?
2: has a lot to do with the uh, overproduction of oil, now followed by overproduction of gasoline. Uh, we have anticipated, certainly refineries anticipated, that south of the border in the U.S., strengthening the economy, three years of Consecutive builds in uh, demand for gasoline. That uh, why not add a fourth year? So refineries really knock themselves out, put a lot of gasoline out there, and demand just isn't there this year. It's not that the economy is slackened or anything else. Uh, it might be weather related. You're looking at uh, really, you know, uh, saturation of the product, and uh, to some extent, just starting to uh, efficiency in vehicles starting to bite. Uh, that's critical to understand because if you look at the fleet of vehicles five years ago versus the ones that are being built and produced today, and here I'm even thinking, uh, light duty trucks, uh, their performance is far better in terms of, uh, consumption than anything we've seen in the past. So I think all told, uh, refineries have overestimated the, uh, uh, the demand picture. They have, uh, been fairly healthy this year, producing a lot of gasoline. They've been able to take advantage of relatively speaking cheaper crude. And all that uh, has really led to uh, the lower-than-expected prices that uh, we're seeing today for this time of year.
1: You talked about a lot of supply. Will they cut that back to try to drive prices up?
2: Not really. I think a lot of them are looking at crude and saying, you know, crude, until the past three days, crude has dropped dramatically. I mean, down uh, almost $10 a barrel in a span of five weeks. I think a lot of them are saying, you know, even if uh, we're not getting as much for gasoline, we're still able to produce and, and buy our oil that much cheaper uh, there will come a point that uh, you know sort of a tipping point so that could happen about the second week of july but by the time we hit august so another month from now uh I realize it's coming up that soon uh, you may very well see a circumstance where they're going to have to liquidate their uh, uh, winter summer blend of gasoline in order to make way for the fall blends and that tends to see an even greater price decrease so for now High uh, volatility on the oil side, high production of gasoline and oil continues to bode well for consumers, Uh, governments uh, adding taxes notwithstanding.
1: Uh, I was just talking to uh, a senior economist with TD Bank, and we were talking about uh, the interest rates set possibly to go up. Uh, in the not too distant future this month as a matter of fact right. uh and he referred to the health of uh the oil industry and and that uh you know forty to fifty dollars was a sweet spot for uh for canadian oil uh, is is there a connection between these two and interest rates going up
2: yeah i don't see that quite the same way. I certainly wouldn't want to be uh put myself in a position of being uh you know the the expert on on economics, but I do know that uh the economics for oil uh, at Canada's discount of some $11 to the current amount of $45 means we're getting about $33 a barrel that isn't enough to uh, uh continue investments or greater investments into oil sands even though there will always be demand for our product worse uh, shell production in the United States at a much cheaper price is what uh, a real potential threat and risk to Canadian uh, producers. Uh, I'm not just saying that. I spent three days at the uh, Energy Information Agency's conference in Washington. I just got back uh, the day before yesterday. And that uh, there's no doubt in their mind that uh, the shale boom isn't just going to threaten OPEC. It could also uh, threaten the need for uh, some Canadian oil, not all. So I don't have quite as rosy a picture of the Canadian oil production, especially since we have much of that production due to do to constraints and pipelines.
1: Uh, and obviously, if the the price of oil stays down, it keeps the Canadian dollar uh, low, and it also keeps inflation low. So surprised to see interest rates creeping up.
2: Yeah, well, some had anticipated rates would inevitably have to go up because, of course, the shock of the oil industry that we saw a couple of years ago's dislocation may well be behind us. We also had the shock this time last year of losing about a third of our production due to the Fort McMurray forest fires. A lot of people have forgotten that, but it does stand uh, and explains a lot of why not only are we seeing a bit of a rise compared to this time last year in, uh, you know, oil's out, uh, uh, oil's uh, performance, but, and its outlook, but I think it's a very short term situation. I think we could uh, very well by September have to rethink uh, uh, relying uh, on stability of the Canadian oil industry as it faces so many headwinds.
1: So, do you think that 40 to $50 is a sweet spot for Canada?
2: I think 40 or 50 is a sweet spot for shale producers south of the border of the United States who are closer to the Gulf Coast and the hub for oil, West Texas Intermediate, which, of course, is in Oklahoma uh, at Cushing. I don't think it's such a sweet spot. I see read this morning uh, several articles about the fact that uh, even if uh, and with the approval, finally, of the, tran- of the uh, uh, Keystone XL, there is every likelihood that, uh, you know, the company is having trouble, uh, TransCanada Pipelines, filling those orders with refiners and uh, with shippers. Uh, it looks like U.S. oil production in the Permian, which is in uh, just outside of Texas, a lot closer to uh, the Gulf Coast where all the refineries are and the shipping routes to the rest of the world, uh, seem to have a strategic ge- uh, geopolitical, geophysical uh, uh, advantage over Canadian oil, so I don't think it's a sweet spot. I think we need to get up towards and above fifty in order for my sense of comfort for uh, uh, for Canadian oil, especially Canadian heavy oil, and in particular uh, to make it uh, saleable at uh, an eleven to twelve dollar discount. We've got to keep remembering when we see WTI at forty five dollars a barrel, take ten to twelve bucks off that. That's what we're getting in Canada, and when I hear from most uh, big producers who pulled out, uh, Shell, ConocoPhillips. Uh, who pulled out very recently out of Canadian Heavy, it's cheaper for them to go and start production in the U.S. than it is in Canada. and That's not something that uh, you can overlook or consider any, any anything near sweet. Uh,
1: so are these uh, projected higher interest rates that are coming, how will that affect the oil industry?
2: not so sure it'll affect the oil industry as much as it will. Uh, then the cost of borrowing will increase, and it will be done in lockstep as what's happening in the United States. Um I'm just not so sure that, or confident that the uh, uh, Canadian economy outside of oil can withstand uh, you know, significant incha- changes to interest rates. We've become very accustomed to that. The biggest threat that I understand to the Canadian economy is personal debt, non-commercial debt, mm-hmm. uh, non-financial institutions, not government debt. Of course, that is starting to increase in both the federal and provincial side, but it is personal consumer debt that is uh, beginning to uh, cause grave concerns uh, by onlookers outside of uh, our uh, bubble.
1: Uh, you talked about the oversupply of, of oil and gas, but talk about demand being down. Does that make sense to you, uh, especially when everybody's predicting in the summertime that everybody gets in their cars and travels yeah. and, and does such? Uh, obviously, uh, no slowing of people buying uh, SUVs and, yeah. and trucks in uh, North America. How do you explain the demand being down?
2: I mean, data reliability aside, and I think it's an important one, is that who has the data on, you know, how much consumption there is? Receipts that I see from a lot of the gas stations uh, are showing that there has been a slight decrease, especially in the United States, in demand. But that doesn't mean that uh, consumers won't be traveling further. You know, rather than driving uh, your, uh, you know, your eight-cylinder vehicle of five years ago, many people are now opting for uh, vehicles that run on sixes and fours that have the same performance. Uh, And the fleet of vehicles has changed dramatically in the the past five years. Um, You know, cars are uh, now more efficient than they were three years ago, let alone 10 years ago, and I think that's starting to show up and register, especially given the United States, as an example, has seen a a strengthening of its economy. Many people have, in fact, bought new cars, and those new cars don't use the same kind of, uh, you know, same kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, fuel loads that they once did. Uh, yes, you Americans are driving uh, large, light, uh, heavy, or light vehicles, uh, vehicles like trucks, but those trucks too have now come down in terms of consumption. Uh, one only has to look at what's called the uh, U.S. CAFE rules, the corporate average fuel efficiency uh, mandated. Uh, cars that ran on 5.4 liters are now running on zero turbo charged uh, V6s, or even lower, 2.7 liters. See if I'm taking Ford, GM, Chrysler, take your pick, Honda, Toyota.
1: Is this becoming the new norm, uh, even for the price of oil, uh, consumption levels? Uh, or are we going to see shortages again and, and higher increases? Is this just one of those cyclical things that happens oil in the economy? if
3: fifty dollars a barrel, uh,
2: U.S. will continue to produce more oil, as will Canada and many other nations. Uh, if it drops below thirty, uh, look for that to see uh, you know uh, a retrenching of and where we were in 2015, when you know virtually half of the production. Uh, had had evaporated, Uh, that, of course, is a zero-sum game. You want to flood the market with oil, you risk the uh, potential that once, uh, you know, prices start to rise again, your uh, uh, new kids on the block, uh, the new shale technologies that are available, will see these productions back on on market and on target. It's not by accident, by the way, that Canada has become the number one exporter of oil and U.S. is number one importer of oil uh, has been from Canada, not from Saudi Arabia, not from Venezuela, as we've seen in the past. Mm. Uh, there is going to be a lot of economic dislocation. We can see that taking place in many nations whose uh, receipts, whose revenues rely more disproportionately on oil revenues. Venezuela, of course, comes to mind, but there are many others who are seeing a very similar uh, outcome. Canada, of course, is insulated, but regionally, uh, it, is, uh, it is facing some some significant challenges. I don't see the world balancing the oil demand and supply uh, especially with efficiency and certainly here in North America for the next couple of years so 2019
1: anyways uh, we saw in the news last night the problems that are going on in Venezuela is this all oil oil related as well with their economy obviously well they're only selling uh, what
2: a third of the oil that they sold uh, three years ago and and that at half the price hmm. so you know they're they're. I uh, put out a blog a couple of weeks ago on the gas body site. And uh, pointed out that uh, Venezuela's revenues are one quarter of what they were four years ago. When governments lose their ability to manage their industries, uh, reinvest and be able to weather uh, uh, these kind of inversions when prices drop uh, you know, uh, two thirds, uh, then, of course, there is uh, the, the likelihood, the chance for economic uh, instability following, of course, you know, its best example, uh, political instability. Uh, people are starving in Venezuela and, and they have no choice. The government there has, for uh, lack of a better term, uh, destroyed uh, much of its industry. Uh, it did not make the investments, fired all the experts, told all of the international global investors who had brought new technologies uh, to leave the country. Uh, it's great to nationalize these things, but uh, governments, frankly, don't know how to run these industries, and uh, there there is no longer a real market for, for Venezuela's uh, oil. Mm. Uh, much of the heavy oil that they have... Uh, which uh, it comes in the Orinoco, is, is not used, and Canada can backfill what, uh, what Venezuela cannot, and can no longer sell.
1: Surprised how the climate has changed so much in the last decade? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were so reliant on these countries, and then all of a sudden it was within five years we, we spun it around. Are you surprised how quickly that happened?
2: Yeah, $100 oil did that. Um, you know, new technologies, the Americans knew that they had the ability to do this, and the Canadian heavy oil, Needed to higher prices in order to be justified. We had that for a good five or six years, from 2007 until 2013. Uh, even into 2014, we had about a hundred dollar oil. That's really what helped uh, other non producers get right back into the game.
1: So it was greed, in a sense.
2: Sure, it uh, no, it had to do with uh, higher prices, perception of countries like China that uh, were, uh, you know, starting to increase their demand for. Raw products, particularly fossil fuels, all of those things, and of course, uh, the uh, lack of regulation of uh, positions taken by and, and the entrance of the new financial investor in oil commodities, all of those things led to $100 to $140 oil plus side to the new technologies and the new investments uh, that have permitted uh, countries like Canada, the United States and many others to produce for far less and to continue producing even when prices are low.
1: So will it go back to the way it was? Will we will we ever be that reliant on other countries for energy, or will we continue to be self-sufficient moving I,
2: forward? I don't think oil will continue. I mean, it is the king of commodities, whether you like it or not. It's not just about transportation. Half of the oil is used for other purposes, everything from our plastics to our pharmaceuticals to parts of our food. Uh, to the standard of living that we uh, we enjoy. But there is diversification taking place, no doubt. Renewables are there. Uh, people have different options and will continue to look from a price-sensitive perspective. By the way, the Americans may have walked away from the climate treaty, but they're not in any way, shape, or form worried. Uh, they know that uh, the uh, demand in the economy Uh, and the ability for, uh, you know, for industry to meet new challenges uh, is really the goal. They don't need to be uh, uh, taught or taxed in order to go in that direction. And it looks like uh, the Americans may actually emerge from this far better in terms of uh, energy diversity than most other nations in the world, dare I say, including Canada.
1: I guess the last few years are proof of that.
2: Well, they are. uh, uh, They've gone from coal to natural gas and Uh, They've gone to, uh, you know, the the largest wind production and use in the world is now in Texas, of all places, where we thought that was only home to oil. Um, There are a number of examples of where uh, the country is going to show leadership. I I suspect China won't be very far behind, um, and other countries will do the same. You still need petroleum product. You still need oil to do so many other things that uh, so far have no replacement, but perhaps in 20, 50, or 100 years there will be. In the meantime, uh, looking down the crystal ball, energy will be a lot of other things rather than simply you know, the dominance of one particular commodity like oil.
1: Uh, so gas prices going through this summer and heading into the fall, what are you expecting?
2: Uh, I'm expecting
1: potentially
2: next next two weeks. August is a big question mark. We could see prices moving up, maybe $0.05 cents a liter if I'm just going to throw a cast of gas into the wind. But come September and October, reality sets in, and I think that's when we're going to see prices collapse simply because there is, the demand wasn't there this summer. There's going to be a huge overhang of supply and efficiency is going to continue to dominate uh, uh, for the foreseeable future, the choice of, uh, of individuals. It also means that people are going to have a little bit more money in their pocket. The cost of living will have come down somewhat. So I think it's going to be a far better year. Perhaps that'll take some pressure off the, uh, uh, the Bank of Canada to increase interest rates because uh, it certainly won't be driven by any uh, you know, non-discretionary inflation.
1: So you seeing that you see the oversupply lasting for a while?
2: I do, and I don't think it's going to. Uh, you know, as long as it's over thirty bucks a barrel, American shale producers uh, can continue to produce at record levels. Um, and of course, there's still a good, you know, year of oil supply surplus that's out there. Uh, we hear that uh, the U.S. Uh, administration is going to uh, sell part of the strategic oil reserve. That will simply add more. Uh, To an already oversupplied, flooded market, if you will. So I'm not seeing any improvement on crude for the next year or so, um, even with unless OPEC. Uh,
1: Getting back to uh, to OPEC. Verify that. Sorry, getting back to. Oh, sorry, you're cutting in and out there, uh, Dan. Um, so uh, let me ask you let me ask you one question. I'm not sure if you covered this or not, but uh, we talked before about OPEC over you know uh, adding more to the market, trying to flood the market and drive the others out. Clearly, that hasn't worked. What is OPEC, the OPEC countries, doing moving forward for the next year? Where where are they going to end up?
2: Disintegration. I think they're they're finished uh, as a unit. I think they will operate uh one-offs i think saudi arabia will go its own route because it has its own requirement to defend its market share it knows that it can't survive at forty dollars a barrel it has far too many obligations it has engaged in a war uh with a uh, war of uh, attrition a proxy war to the south and yemen uh it's there's a lot of social unrest in that country uh i think there's there's a likelihood that they're going to have to you know move probably in concert with uh with russia uh and of course uh balance off what's happening in Iraq and Iran with both those countries producing oil in record volumes and not likely to end any time soon. This is not going to end well for OPEC um, and what I call NOPEC, the 12 other nations that aren't part of OPEC like Russia that joined them in this, uh, this sort of uh, light uh, attempt at trying to bring down levels of production. Uh, we're going to have to see thirty dollars a barrel of oil before we see it moving back up to $50, 55 and sixty, and staying there. And that's not likely to happen for another year.
1: So that's obviously going to create a lot more instability in the Middle East over the next few years.
2: Well, I think it's already there. Uh, yeah. You know, how many? How many uh, you have a major standoff between Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. You yeah. have a war of attrition in uh, in Yemen. Uh, you have instability uh, uh, in in Libya. Uh, you're still not. You know the the situation with ISIS in both Iran and rather Iraq and uh, uh, and uh, and Syria uh, continues to uh, uh, to 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 hamper uh, any type of uh, long-term solution. No, I don't think oil uh, in the Middle East uh, is uh, is going to get any better anytime soon, and uh, we'll have to watch it from the sidelines, recognizing that uh, from a independent point of view, we have enough oil to satisfy North American needs. Americans, though, I think, have a we're going to have to do a better job at realizing they can't do without Canadian heavy oil unless their refineries are prepared to make massive investments in taking light uh, tight shale oil. And I, I want just everyone to understand one word: NAPTA. Not
0: mm. NAPTA, but NAPTA,
2: naphtha. Not naphtha, but naphtha. N a p h t h a. That's one of the residual products of uh, light tight shale oil, and it's not good stuff for refineries. They prefer the Canadian heavy oil. So there's still a good news story for us. Um, it's going to require a lot more. Uh, intensity and uh, and a better price, I think, for Canadian oil to uh, to make a comeback and to uh, uh, wind up again on solid footing.
1: Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, energy analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great long weekend.
3: Thanks, Scott. Happy 150th to you and all the uh, listeners. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show
2: weekdays
1: from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We haven't really talked about Donald Trump today, which is a good thing. And it's normally around this time that we do. But um, we haven't talked about him a lot uh, this week. Now, I was away for a couple of days. But, you know, I'm wondering if that's just because we're now just uh, thinking same old, same old, or uh, things have settled down a bit. Uh, I'm not... I'm not quite sure or perhaps we're just tired of the confusion. Uh, But of course, some of that confusion has been around uh, the rhetoric about uh, renegotiating NAFTA, which of course is happening. Uh, and, of course, uh, trade deals with uh, pretty much everybody that does business with the United States. Uh, Hamilton MPs have returned from Washington, where they went to talk steel trade with the current administration. To talk more about all of this, David Sweet is with us, conservative MP for uh, Flamborough-Glanbrook, and is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. Uh, happy Sesquicentennial! Back at you. Are you getting excited? I'm starting to see a little bit more red and white around uh, neighborhoods. Uh, are you starting to see more flags out?
2: There's lots going on this
1: uh, Canada
2: Day and subsequent days. is going to be uh, very unique because it is the 150th, and everybody that normally has a Canada Day celebration has augmented it with additional things, and so. It's going to be a busy day for us MPs, but it's going to be a great celebration for all Canadians,
0: and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Just last night, uh, night David, I put out my Canadian flag out on my garage uh, to celebrate the weekend. So here's hoping lots of uh, Canadians do the same. Uh, first of all, tell us about this trip. How did it come about? And because it's great to see all parties being represented here.
2: Yeah, it was. It's, we have an all-party steel caucus uh, in, in Parliament, and uh, so that, uh, and, uh, and we're actually very heavy-laden and Hamilton uh, MPs, and so I hope uh, that uh, those folks that are involved in the steel industry are, uh, are, uh, are aware of that. Uh, and, of course, uh, we all went down um, to Washington to make sure that uh, we wanted to communicate the importance of the steel industry to, uh, obviously, our concern is for steel workers, steel producers here in Canada, but we wanted to go down and communicate to our counterparts in Congress that the Steel industry is so integrated that uh, any any negative move towards um, trade in regards to uh, the steel producers in Canada would have a negative effect uh, not only on Canadian steel producers and Canadian steel workers but also on American steel producers and workers as well. Oftentimes, one component for a car will cross the border a couple of times uh, until it uh, until it's uh, refined to its uh, end state for the uh, for the uh, completion of the car. So. Um, those kinds of things uh, we needed to raise to make sure that any there wouldn't be any negative consequences as far as trade between our two countries.
1: What was their response when you talked about the synergies between the two countries?
2: Well, we met with the American Iron and Steel Association. We met with the United Steelworkers down there. We met with our own embassy, but we met also with the dedicated Steel Caucus of congressional leaders and. Uh, I, I felt that they were very receptive. They uh, understood uh, the steel industry. I think we were able to give them even a deeper understanding of uh, how important it is to uh, communicate to the administration that uh, this is uh, that history needs to continue. Historically, uh, steel that was made in the United States or Canada was always treated by both respective countries as domestic, and there was a good reason for that because it's so integrated. and uh, And we wanted to assure them that the relationship should continue that
3: way
1: uh how how receptive are they to that I mean I remember uh when when free trade was was talked about a few decades ago it was a hard it was a you know a hard ball, a ball to push it was hard to get it down the road now we finally get it there it's been there for several decades and and, and now it's come back around and, and we're questioning it do those people that you're talking to down there realize the integration between the United States and Canada you're talking about car parts that go down get something put on them then come back and vice versa i mean you know at the end of the day they must be aware of this too are are they not
2: yeah they are and i think uh we uh, made it very clear if there were any gaps uh that it was not only the automotive industry but it was many other industries where steel production and steel fabrication uh, plays a role in it and we made it also very clear to them that any interruption because of this integration is going to harm their workers as well and of course we're us here in Hamilton, it's not only our present workers, but we want to continue to make sure that the uh, our companies stay stable because that's the best way to ensure the benefits for uh, those retirees as well.
1: How concerned should Canadians be with the Buy American rhetoric?
2: Well, I listen. obviously we are concerned. That's why we went down there. So I, I, I think um, the best thing we can do is take action when that rhetoric starts. And, and the best thing to do is to explain to them, Exactly what we did as far as the benefit to both countries, uh, the United States uh, exports steel to Canada. Uh, I think that was a surprise for a number of people that we spoke to yesterday. And uh, so they, they need to understand that this is a reciprocal arrangement that's beneficial for both. And uh, any, any kind of action is going to be detrimental to them.
1: I guess my surprise here is, David, how can they not be aware of that? I mean, I guess it were small potatoes compared to them, but at the end of the day, it's all on the balance sheet, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I think they have some of the same challenges that uh, we have in the sense that uh, there's some policymakers that are aware of it, but being able to push it out to not only at the federal level, but to the state level and then down to the local level uh, and then down to those people whose... who are concerned about their jobs, uh, but don't understand that um, this is this action that uh, around steel is not going to be beneficial for them. I think uh, that's uh, part of what we were trying to do is to you know, energize them to continue to keep up that communication with their uh, with their lo- uh, with their state and local governments so they're aware of it.
0: Uh,
1: with NAFTA, of course, being renegotiated, uh, you know, at this time and all of these. Uh, you know whether it's 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 lumber, whether it's steel, what have you, and, and now we're even talking about telecommunications. It's going to affect a lot of things. Was it time for this to be renegotiated anyway? Uh, has Canada been getting a sweet deal that perhaps uh, now we may not get moving forward?
2: Well, I'm. You know, listen. I, this is up to the present day government, and I hope that uh, they they uh, uh, exercise some good brinkmanship at the. At the negotiating table, we not only is our steel industry integrated, but our our power grids are integrated. We we found that out in the past from power failures that originated from the United States because of that integration, uh, and and many more of the multinational companies where we have a lot of employment here. There's a lot of employment in the United States, and so um, these agreements, I believe, and are very very beneficial. And I think that. Um, Both parties have benefited from it. That's why they've been sustained. And the best thing that we can do is go armed with uh, the right kind of information to get the best deal that we can going forward and an even better deal than we've got right now.
1: Uh, We remember when free trade was first negotiated, a lot of people were were against it. Uh, Has it taken care of workers? Has it been good for Canada?
2: Absolutely. I think this, you know, listen, we're an exporting nation. And uh, uh, to the south of us is a market that's 10 times the size of ours. Uh, In the CETA agreement, uh, similar situation where the huge marketplace and, uh, you know, we we need to consistently make sure that our manufacturers that our producers are uh, locally here in Hamilton. We have over a billion dollars in agricultural uh, GDP. We need to make sure that they have customers and there's not enough customers in Canada. We need those international agreements to, be, to uh, open markets for uh, for jobs, you know, here in Canada.
1: David Sweet has been with us, or is with us, Conservative MP Flamborough Glambrook, talking about a uh, contingency that went down to Washington to talk uh, steel and trade. Uh, David, uh, lots of chat, obviously, with Bedrock buying U.S. steel. Uh, being a U.S. company, does that work in their favour? Uh, how are they looking at this moving forward?
2: Listen, I'm not certain exactly how Bedrock is looking at it. I, I only hope that uh, they're going to uh, do the best they can to make sure that both locations are very profitable and uh, they take every opportunity to bring those uh, facilities up to, um, you know, 21st century standards so that they're competitive. That way, we'll have the maximum amount of employment uh, here locally and in Port Erie. And uh, and as I said before, I think the the more assistance that we give to uh, the our steel industry locally and and uh as an aggregate across the country, the more it will sustain uh, those benefits that have been uh, apportioned to workers from the
1: past uh you talked earlier uh who you met with down there. Can you expand on that and do these discussions with these groups with these people do they differ do they differ from the rhetoric that we may hear coming from the president
2: uh I think that uh, the American Iron and Steel Association is well aware and they communicate directly with senators and congressmen, any administration on a regular basis. They're well aware of how integrated the uh, industry is. In fact, the the Canadian Steel Producers Association uh, has a uh, membership role with them. And so having them as an advocacy group there uh, is is very beneficial for us. Um, And, of course, they're in uh, Washington all the time. That's where they're located. Uh, speaking with the United Steelworkers, uh, of course they uh, they have concerns about their own steelworkers, and they understand too that with this integrated marketplace, that anything certainly anything in the short and medium term that would affect the trade would be uh, uh, detrimental to their workers. So it was good to be able to speak with them, not only the congressional leaders, but those people that stay in Washington and continue to advocate on a regular basis, and and really know the complexity of the steel industry
1: uh we of course have heard of all levels of government uh being involved in this so the provincial government just uh finished something very similar and then was disheartened to hear uh new york state talking about uh by american it's great that the, the, these meetings are going on it's great that they're meeting with you and and listening to you but is any of this stuff resonating do you think david
2: uh yeah and i'm uh, i'm glad you brought that up because it's the of course the premiers and the uh and the provincial ministers have a role in that regard and uh i'm glad to see that they're very active on it as well because they get down to the to the state and local level uh uh much more and so we need that kind of communication i think uh the premier was very vocal in uh in her concern on that regard and uh i know that uh, other premiers have been active down there as well cuz uh, that was that was reported to us actually when we were down there so We all have, uh, it's it's a a team effort, uh, not only across party lines, but across government levels. And uh, the more that we continue to work on that, the more we can educate uh, uh, those people who are trade partners of ours that uh, these things are mutually beneficial.
1: Uh, Will these negotiations, will this chatter drag on forever, just stalling the whole process, or does it have to be dealt with reasonably, reasonably soon? Reasonably well, quickly, the
2: two thirty-two security review. That my understanding is, they're going to come out with, and that was our concern that there was going to be some issue uh, emanating from that uh, review that's going to be reported in the next few days. Uh, as far as NAFTA is concerned, I mean, NAFTA is a complex agreement, um, and uh, it depends on the dimension of renegotiation that uh, we're talking about. It's uh, you know, if it's going to be every jot and tittle, it'll take some time. Yeah, uh, you know, but uh, that will be for the parties that are involved to get to the table and uh, to come up with some um, uh, terms of reference of just exactly how they're going to approach this uh, renegotiation.
1: What happens now, David? F- future meetings like this will this happen again?
2: I'm certain it will. I'm certain as we approach uh, new levels where there's some concern uh, as we uh, as we deal with uh, NAFTA, uh, then uh, I'm certain that there's there's going to be other advocacy that we. We do it on a regular basis, but uh, whenever we have a trading partner who's raised some concerns and is uh, are calling uh, the status quo something that's unfair, then we need to take an even, even more uh, uh, determined uh, effort.
1: How long were you in Washington, and is the buzz down there different than it was with the previous administration?
2: Well, listen, I listen, I've we talked directly to uh, our ambassador there. Um, He explained that uh, he's been through uh, two administrations and uh, there's uh, challenges and opportunities with both. (laughs) And I I think that's always going to be the case. Uh, uh, People operate differently. So when you have somebody different at the helm uh, and you have different people who are answering to that person, then they're going to have different styles, et cetera. But I, you know, I think for uh, our embassy and uh, for, uh, for us, of course, like I said, for uh, our government and the provincial governments uh, the main thing is to try and find, you know, try to uh, continue to illuminate uh, to our partners the benefits that they have in any of these agreements and uh, keep returning to that uh, and remind them that, uh, these, you know, we're in a global marketplace. We need to stay competitive in North America and this is beneficial for us.
1: What sort of message, David, do you have for Hamiltonians who might be concerned about all of this, especially in the manufacturing industry? Uh, how are they to view all of this?
2: Uh, listen, I, I think that they can be confident that uh, their representatives are are uh, there for them uh, and uh, negotiating for them and, uh, and advocating for them, and I think that uh, they should um, celebrate uh, the sesquicentennial with the, uh, the, uh, the great spirit, it should be celebrated knowing that, uh, we're going to do everything that we can to get the best deal possible, not, not just for the steel industry. I mean, that's what we're talking about right now, but in every aspect of NAFTA or any trade agreement going forward, I uh, get the best deal we possibly can so that it benefits not only this generation, but, uh, you know, the generations to come.
1: David Sweet has been with us, Conservative MP Flamborough Glambrook. David, thank you very much for the time, and have yourself a happy 150. And you too, Scott. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canada, we were talking about this yesterday. Canada has come out relatively unscathed from the recent cyber attack, uh, which hit parts of the United States, some pretty large companies, pretty large international companies. Uh, as well, uh, the Ukraine seemed to get hit the hardest, and also Russia. We were talking about this yesterday, that usually Russia's behind this thing. What is it that, you know, they're getting attacked? Uh, that being said, is that all a smoke, stream, a smoke screen? Uh, initially, this was all people thought about ransomware, which is basically they take over your computer and then they ask you for money in order to get control of it back. Uh, could this be something bigger? Joining us is Danny Timmons, CEO and President of National Cybersecurity, uh, and is with us now. Hello, Danny. How are you today? Hello, Danny. How are you today?
3: Good. Doing good. Thank you.
1: Thank you for taking the time to join us. So when all of this – well, first, when this story broke, my thought was usually it's someplace like a China or a Russia attacking the rest of the world. It seems that everybody uh, was in some way a part of that.
3: Uh, is that a smokescreen? Is that unusual? So if, if I can just talk about ransomware. So ransomware as a, as a group, right, it's, a, it's called malware, and uh, and and underneath malware, you have different kinds of uh, malware. So one of them is ransomware, one is spyware, marketware, and they have other types of malware. So ransomware, the whole idea around ransomware is it basically locks out computers, and then you've got to pay, like you said. But there are other things that it can do. In this particular scenario, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about was it launched as a denial of service, uh, meaning that uh, they didn't really care about the payment. But they really wanted to lock people out and cause havoc, and so it's really an unknown. I think at this point, uh, why it was launched, uh, but it could definitely have been either or.
1: So uh, people are concerned that this may not be about ransom, but more about just getting a, a deeper hold, a deeper invasion into the computer.
3: It it, it could very well be, but ran- the the whole purpose of ransomware, though, as 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 right. the you know, in, in in if you look at. You know, because it's Russia and Ukraine and and the targets were, um, you know, infrastructure, banking and those kinds of things. Um, You know, if I can just kind of start off, you know, the problem will not go away until until businesses and people um, really focus on patching and uh, doing the things that they're supposed to be doing with their systems. There's not, I mean, today it's uh, PETA. Tomorrow, it's uh, another version of, of malware of some type and ransomware. And so, but people, you know, the people that are affected in those countries could have stopped this if they would have actually patched their systems. And if they would have done what they were supposed to do, um, this wouldn't have uh, had, had, a, had an effect like it did across even in those folks in the U.S. So it is simple as that, as
1: just making sure that everything is updated and you have all the patches that you need. And, and you know, they're always telling us personal users to do that. Why wouldn't industry be doing that?
3: You know, the average is, uh, I know it's going to sound uh, maybe a long time, but the average is between probably 9 and 10 months for um, organizations to pass their systems. So if you're, if you're uh, a person who's going to launch you know, ransomware, you have a really large window. And even if you're, going to, if, if you're a hacker and you're going to hack an organization, you have such a large window of time because we're talking average. So mm. some organizations three years, some organizations one month.
1: So do, what do we know about the, where this originated? What can you tell us?
3: You know, I, I it's it's very very difficult to tell this actual uh, ransomware from some of the reading I did. Actually, um, uh, became a uh, like the, the the original one started in two thousand sixteen. The version that just was launched uh, just in June was uh, you know they kind of named it Not Peta, you know they that that's the name of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so that's just a variant of the one that originally came out. And uh, that came out in uh, 2016. So they're not sure where it came from exactly. But a lot of the ransomware comes from uh, or is built uh, is built uh, out of the Eastern Bloc. Why uh, Ukraine hit so hard on this? You know, again, I I think whether their systems weren't patched, and some of them maybe there's you know there may be some illegal software that some of the users are. So you if you got illegal software, you can't patch. But you would think that you know the infrastructure and the banking systems wouldn't you know they'd have their their the legal software and be updated. But it sounds like they weren't updated. If I look at all of the ones that went down, I would I'm assuming because I'm not there that uh, that uh, they weren't patched and they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, for their organization, is this organized crime or government intervention? You know, that's the big question that's being asked today. It could be either or. Um, you know, there is uh, if we're looking at the amount of payment because they do track the payment on these ransomware. It was very low. I can't remember the number, but it was a very low amount. Uh, but it just launched uh, just 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 you know like uh, this week. So um you know the 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 uh the jury's out i guess in a way of you know where did it start and and it, the big question is even with the one before this the WannaCry cry one uh some of the um some of the folks that uh that i read uh, we're talking about that particular one also being a denial of service attack, not just a ransomware attack. So the difference is really ransomware is, you know, you, you, you lock out somebody's computer and then you pay it and pay some money and then they'll give it back to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, denial of service is really not allowing an organization to get back up and running and so, um, or, or disrupting that organization so they can't get up and running without even giving them an option to, to um, to be able to pay and and some of the problems with the NotPeta, the one that just was launched recently was that there was a problem in even being able to pay so they're saying well why would a ransomware organization organized crime have a have a problem you know uh, create a problem like that for the users to not pay so they're saying it's it's possible that it's coming from um, you know, from a state-sponsored uh, uh, nation um, or, um, because of that, because of the... Because
1: was, they, they weren't, it wasn't generating the revenue that it should have.
3: Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, on that note, lots of chatter about Russian hacking, especially specifically with, with the U.S. election and such, uh, but they were hacked as well. Does that mean they were not involved? Does that mean they weren't behind it? Could that be a smokescreen?
3: I mean, they for this particular ransomware, yes. I know WannaCry, hit them really hard, hit Russia really hard. Again, it had a lot to do with, you know, probably illegal uh, software that folks had on their uh, on their systems, and also um, not patching their systems. Um, for the WannaCry one, for this one here, you know, I, I think that uh, anybody doesn't have a patch system. So if you're connected to that organization by any means, or if you're sent, you know, that file because they're all they're very close, right? Then they probably have connections between each other. Um, you know, you're, if you get that file, you're going you're, you're gonna, to you're, you're gonna get uh, ransomware on your systems and it's going to lock you out. The other thing I can add to that is one of the problems with a lot of the ransomware, one of the challenges, uh, maybe a better term, with a lot of the ransomware that's coming out, it can do multiple things. So a lot of the new variants uh, will also uh, exfiltrate passwords out of your system while it's actually locking out. The second thing it'll do is actually exfiltrate files um, and documents and, you know, and things of that sort out of your organization. So not only will they um, target you and lock you out, and then you have to pay, then they'll, they'll actually um, connect with you again and then mm. extort you once again to say, hey, wow. I've got all your passwords and, and your files. Do you want them back, or do I put them on the public domain? How concerned are
1: security experts that this involved so much in the Ukraine? I mean, banking systems, traffic lights. I mean, it, it, it literally covered the gamut.
3: It definitely is. Uh, I think people should should uh, be concerned because uh, you know we all have infrastructure, right? Canada and the U.S. and and so on. We all have infrastructure, and and uh, you know we don't want it to happen to our infrastructure. So we definitely look at that as a concern. I'm sure our government and and our intelligence organizations are are looking at this pretty seriously.
1: Joining us has been Danny Timmons, CEO and President, National Cybersecurity Leader, MNP. Danny, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
3: You're welcome. Have a good day.
1: You too. Let's bring in Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, to discuss this. Hello, Stephanie. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Is this about ransomware? Is this about organized crime, uh, trying to hack into something to make money? Or is this a bigger security issue? Uh, is this state-sponsored, something disguised as ransomware, do you think?
4: Oh, well, it's really too early to say because you know it's still being dissected. They're still trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, they, here's the thing with ransomware is that it has is, it is, uh, been very profitable. We know that uh, cyber gangs and cyber criminals have been using it in order to make money. But, you know, you have to start thinking that states have come to realize that, you know, ransomware attacks aren't just money-making operations. They're a disruptive tool. They send a message, and they can be used to uh, kind of rattle someone that you're targeting. And so the concern is, I think, And you're seeing this, I guess, uh, with cybersecurity experts uh, online commenting on this uh, new ransomware attack, the fact that, you know, there's there's increasing concern that states could be looking at this particular uh, method of disruption and using it. And that may have been the case here with Ukraine because it was specifically targeting uh, uh, Ukrainian software.
1: Uh, Russia also a part of that hack. Does that mean it could not have been them? I mean, we certainly know the politics involved with Russia and and the Ukraine. Where does that, what what, what role does that play in all of this?
4: So my understanding was that there was a Russian bank that was attacked. It was Rosneft. Um, they seem to have overcome that attack particularly quickly uh, without suffering too much harm. So that's a, a very interesting development that, you know, those Russian entities that were attacked seem to have not suffered in the same way that Ukrainian companies have. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, we can't say this was Russia. And part of the difficulty that we have is, well, first of all, there's always a problem with attribution when it comes to cyber events. You know, it's very hard to... um uh, pick a uh, one, um, um, you know, kind of, it, it's always really, really hard to pick one particular uh, country that did it. And the other issue is, of course, is that countries like Russia, China, Iran, they, they're known to use uh, proxies,
0: mm-hmm.
4: right? So they use, um, you know, cyber gangs. They may hire them. So, you know, you can attribute it maybe to a location, but you, or an, even an individual or a particular computer or a network, but, you know, who's actually like paying the bills behind it? That becomes more and more difficult to assess.
1: So why Ukraine? Is it just because they're so vulnerable?
4: Well, if we look at the wider context, I mean, it's not just a cyber attack they suffered yesterday. They've also, in the past couple of weeks, lost three major intelligence officials in violent attacks.
0: Mm. There's
4: a car bomb attacking an individual. So, you know, this is and this is why the attack is so suspicious. It attacks. The Ukraine um, through a, a piece of software that uh, almost all Ukrainian companies were, were using. So, in one sense, the attack was confined to the Ukraine or businesses that were doing business in the Ukraine. Uh, it was comprehensive. In other words, it was throughout the country. And the company that basically makes the software pretty small, relatively speaking. So it, it was a fairly attractive, you know, if you were trying to uh, target the Ukraine, mm-hmm. it was it, this piece of software was very attractive for a, a host of reasons.
1: What does it say and how concerned are experts that it literally brought the whole place to a standstill, whether it's banking, whether it's traffic uh, systems, that sort of thing?
4: So what is unique about this? You know, there's still some debate over what kind of software this was. There's a software program called Petya, um, and some people are saying it is Petya, and Petya, or a variance thereof, and some people are saying, no, it's not. It's, uh, so they're either calling it not Petia or Petnya. Um, so it, mm-hmm. it's not particularly easy. But what, I mean, what it used was, um, you know, there are some similarities with, uh, prior attacks that we've seen this year, uh, I- including the use of an NSA exploit called Eternal Blue. But what seems to have really concerned cyber, you know, people who are working in this area is the way that this particular piece of software moves laterally within a network. Right. In other words, it was, it didn't have a piece of, you know, normally you have a piece of code and it, um, you know, it kind of attaches itself and it moves itself that way. But in this particular case, it seems to have actually been able to, you know, this, this attack was able to actually use the normal tools that you would use to just basically run a network. It was able to kind of use just basic administrative tools to kind of spread throughout the network. And that's actually very hard to detect. And it's very hard to actually stop and it's hard, you know, because it looks like your computer's behaving normally, Mm. right? So it looks like your computer's just doing basic admin attacks when actually it's actually, you're sorry, basic admin work when it actually it's kind of uh, being subject to these kinds of um, uh, intrusion. So that's kind of the concern here, the way it moved laterally within these organizations. Thankfully, it was confined, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it was... um, uh, you know, there's no, there, there was no kill switch involved.
1: Right. So, uh, are, your, are you? Are you
4: only pick this one? Yeah.
1: So, you are concerned that this attack could ha- or it has gone deeper than what originally thought, and we could still see the repercussions from it.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, we could still see the re- re- repercussions from it, but it seems to have been very limited again, and this is what makes it so suspicious to Ukrainian uh, computers, to Ukrainian like people who are using this particular software, and that's why this particular variant isn't spreading so unlike um wanna mm-hmm. was the big one that happened last uh, uh i believe last month or, or just before that um that was designed to spread across as many computers as possible as fast as possible whereas this particular piece of software what it did is once it got in it was designed to kind of take over a network but not necessarily to, to spread outside of that network
1: how will the rest of the world react to this How should we react to this?
4: Well, it is very concerning. I mean, I think part of the overall problem is that, you know, computer, the way we've designed computers is not necessarily with security in mind. We've designed our computers and our networks to facilitate, you know, the job of everyday administration to make it easier. So what we're increasingly going to have to start seeing is uh, software companies who design with security in mind as a priority. Uh, Going forward, and Hmm. it was like designed to protect the consumer and to protect the user because the way these attacks are spreading is that it's taking advantage of fairly, uh, it's taking advantage of older systems, it's taking advantage of bad security practices that are kind of set up by the very nature of the way these networks are actually formed. So I think what it is is governments have to start putting pressure on companies to say, okay, well you're using open source software to design your products, well you know you need to start putting consumer safety in mind first and foremost not uh the ease of your own operations first
1: hmm uh from too much information to uh we've got to have security for this information
4: that's what i think that's basically right yeah
1: what uh so uh, with the extent of this tack this attack and the systems that have been brought down and we, we just had a uh, an expert on this earlier uh, it's a case of just hitting updates it's a case of of doing the patchwork when when it is suggested do you find it hard to believe that that's some of the reason behind such something that affected so many people
4: well yeah I mean I would say in this particular case it's you know it was almost even able to get around some of those updates and that's what makes it so particularly scary because of the way it was able to kind of um trick the admin uh and and use use the admin functions but you're right like in the vast 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 majority of cases People I need to update their iPhones. They need to update their computers. I mean, no one likes that. I mean, my trick is to try and update my iPhone while I'm brushing my teeth. Hmm. Um, that's like, so much I'm brushing my teeth. I can't text, so I might as well that's update right. my, my applications. <laughs> that's my trick, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, for what it's worth. But, yeah, I mean, it, that's what's so important because, you know, what's happening is that at all times you have – uh, people trying to find what's called exploits, these little cracks in the foundation of programs that they can use to sneak in and then deliver a payload. So the payload being the bad piece of software, which then either inserts ransomware or is able to kind of get into your network and steal information, these kinds of things. Uh, part of the, Yeah, and, and part of the, one of the interesting things is that the vast majority of ransomware and cyber attacks Actually, use older computers uh, or older systems because they know that people tend not to update these.
0: Hmm, there you go. So, you
4: know, if we do update, that's that's the way of the future.
1: Stephanie Carbon is with us, assistant professor of international affairs, Carleton University. Stephanie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on
0: the Scott Thompson Show.
4: Weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred
0: CHML.